So Matthew chapter 19, if you would stand with me, if you can, starting in verse 16, and we'll go through verse 30. And it reads like this. Just then someone came up and asked him, Teacher, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, he said to him. There's only one who's good. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he asked him. Jesus answered, do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. I've kept all these, the young man told him. What do I still lack if you want to be perfect or complete? Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter responded to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, in the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Don't miss this. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come and as we approach uh, your word, as we engage with your word, we realize that we're engaging with you, Father. And we know everybody that approaches you leaves different. And so we pray, Father, not only that you would make us different, but that you would make us better, Father. Be with us. Change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you take your seat? Uh, sometimes solving a problem is as simple as turning it upside down. Sometimes solving a problem is as simple as putting it in a mirror and realizing that you've just had it backwards the whole time. Um, I don't know uh, if you grew up like I did, but I remember uh, the frustration and horror that would come Sometimes when I walked into school and um, I looked to my group of friends, the people that I expected to love on me and to give me affirmation, um, and they would respond, and their first words out of their mouth would be things like, um, you're ugly. I hate you. I don't want to be your friend. I never want to be around you again, and they would just continue to go in and in and in and right about the time you're about to grab them by their collar, um, they say, wait, wait, wait. And these three words change everything. It's opposite day. <laughs> it's opposite day. What was a problem, now with those three words, what I saw, oh, all I have to do is reverse it and now I see things rightly. You were really saying that I'm beautiful. And when you said you hated me, that was you saying that I'm loved. When you said that you didn't want to be around me, what you said is that you didn't want me far from you. This problem that I had was fixed by reversing it. And the angst that I felt on the inside was replaced with a smile because I had a lens to interpret it. Um, for everyone in here, uh, I want you to know that today is for those of us in here that may not have heard those words from God. I hate you. I don't want to be around you. I don't like you. But you felt those feelings from God because of the way that your life has panned out. 
that you felt like, God, I'm doing the right thing. I'm trying to do all of the right thing. You were the person I was supposed to go to for the affirmation. And it seems like whenever I come in, all I get is things that seem like you want to push me away. My relationships don't go the way that I want to. My marriage is falling apart. My finances are not working. God, it feels like you hate me. And I want you to know Matthew 19 is settled right here in this book. in a place where Jesus has just done the miraculous for a few years, and he's taking the 12 disciples, and as he's on his way to death, they're on this road trip with him. It seems like Jesus just continues to give them bad news after bad news after bad news. He's going to die. He's going to die. He's going to die. And if you follow and stay with him on this car, um, things are actually going to turn out the same way for you. But Jesus also, in the midst of all of this, says, no, 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 no. Although I'm going to die, he's giving these predictions that he's going to raise from the dead. Jesus is never going to talk about his death without mentioning resurrection. But the disciples here and are consumed with his death, with these hard times, and they feel this angst. And what Jesus is trying to say to them, the same thing, or is the same thing that he's trying to say to us. Don't prematurely Exit the vehicle. Don't eject. Don't turn your back on him, even though it feels like things are going wrong. The message of the kingdom that he gives is that it's opposite day. Or if I could put it in the way that the Bible says it is, uh, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Or if I could put it in a phrase, the main point that I really want you to leave with is this. In this broken, fallen world that we live in, uh, Jesus sets things right by turning everything upside down. Jesus sets things right by turning everything upside down. And if we grasp that and take that lens, it'll drastically affect the way that we live in God's world. In the kingdom of God, one of the things that we see very early on is hear this um everybody that approaches Jesus leaves different than when they came I did not say they leave better than when they came I said they leave different Matthew 19 starting in verse 1 it says this look when Jesus had finished saying these things again he's uh, he just talked about how humility is the glue that holds the community of God together. He departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Remember, he's on his way to his death. Verse 2, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Everybody that was helpless, hopeless, and broken that approached Jesus left made whole. People come and leave different. But it's not only the helpless and hopeless that approach him. It's also the proud and the haughty. Verse 3 says this. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? You saw that phrase right there? Some had approached him to test him. That there is a way to approach Jesus... Well, your aim is not to get anything from him, but have him come alongside and co-sign what you want to do. So this is how we would fit in here. We wouldn't approach him with a question like this because there's a context that shaped that. But there's a way to test God, and that's this. Uh, I've got a major life decision to make. The Bible is abundantly clear about what I should do but I already have my mind made up. And I go to people and counsel, and I listen to sermon after sermon after sermon, after sermon or thing after thing after thing after thing until I find what agrees with me. That's a prideful way to approach the text. It's saying that I know what's right, and I just want to find what I need to find in here to help me continue to do what's right. And listen, everybody that's proud 
or haughty when they approach Jesus, they leave different. They leave humbled. That what Jesus is going to do is he's going to turn or change this world. He's going to fix this world by turning everything upside down. And what Matthew 19 does, and we're just going to fly over this text. So there's going to be a lot that may be unclear at the end. Um, and that's good because it gives you a great impetus to study what the rest of this text is about. I'm just trying to help us see as we fly over what are the things that are clear. And in Matthew 19, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take these categories of people, men, women, married, single, adults, children, rich, poor, and in a society that favors one over the other, Jesus is constantly going to flip this on his head. He's constantly going to turn things around, right? Look look how that plays out here. Uh, 19, verse 1 through 3, they come to him with a question about divorce. And they say, yo, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Hear this on any grounds. They're asking him about process and instruction. And Jesus says this in verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate, verse 7, and then they go, why then did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? Here's what takes place right here. In this society, even amongst the people of God, it was natural in this time for people to live in what's called a patriarchal society, right? And that was where if you take a man and a woman and say which one is worth more, people say, oh, of course the man. So you give him freedoms and and, uh, things there. And in this day and age, uh, it was possible for women to be treated as property, not as people. So what would take place is there were these two schools of thought based on Deuteronomy 24.1. It'll be right here on the screen. Um, And this is Moses giving people this um, uh, instruction on divorce. And what he says is, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate. Certificate, hand it to her and send her away from his house. Here's what took place. There was instruction that God gave, hear this, to help a sinful world respond with what the sin uh, was in that world. So in this day and age, what men would do is they would divorce their wives, take them back. Divorce their wives, take them back. And they would treat them like this property. So Moses is like, wait, 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 here's the instruction. When you send her away, uh, know that you're going to send her away for good. You, you, you can't treat her like that. There were these two schools of thought that would major on these words, something or some kind of indecency. So one group of thought would spend their time on the something. And this was the school of Hillel. And and so what they would say is, um, a man is free to divorce his wife if he finds anything indecent. So you had folks, literally, that felt like they had grounds for divorce if their wife burnt a meal. So if you burn the toast, sweetie, you're out of here. There was another school of thought that spent their time on indecency. And they're like, well, what does that mean if she's unfaithful? And then they broaden the definition of that term and they would send them out. And so you have this group trying to talk about what are the right instructions. And do you know what Jesus does? He doesn't spend his time talking about instructions. He goes to the beginning and talks about intentions. No, no, this was God's purpose. God's purpose was creating a family. God's purpose was Permanence. God's purpose was giving dignity and value to the woman. And so he's going to go to them and say, y'all that are supposed to spend your time reading, haven't you read? 
Jesus is going to say, before we get into any conversation about instructions, let's start with intent. Let's start with what God wanted. And in this, what he does, hear this, is in a culture that would diminish the value of women. He turns it on its head and flips it up. Now, this text and this sermon is not about divorce. So I'm going to say four quick things that will guide our time and then we are going to move on. The very first one is this. God hates divorce because it's harmful. What we're not saying is that there is never a just reason for divorce. But what I am saying is that divorce always causes collateral damage because it rips apart something that God meant to be permanent. Moses' instruction was meant so that people wouldn't go lightly or hastily into divorce. That's one. Two, um, counsel and not one sermon is the best way to go about if you find yourself at a place where you feel like that's the only option, right? Counsel is this, somebody that sits down and says, look, here's what all of God's word says about this for your one circumstance. A sermon is just, this is what this one text says to all of you. So if you're here and you're struggling and you hear this, oh, we can divorce if there's immorality that's going on and you feel like that's the silver bullet, that's all I need to move forward, I want to caution you and say, uh, this isn't all the Bible says about it, so it's not all that you need to hear. Three, and I want you to hear this one. As Jesus goes in verse 8 and says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, hear this, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here's the third thing, and it seems so plain, but it's so needed in the world that we live in. Sex is never just sex. Sex is something very spiritual meant to testify to the reality of God taking two lives and making them one. So the introduction of another sexual partner into marriage, the reason why Jesus says that that would be grounds for divorce, is all it is is affirming the reality that somebody did something that at its very core creates a union and can undo, can start to sever these ties. Sex is never just sex. And so I want you to hear this. Uh, pornography is not just porn. The effects of it are not just as simple as clearing your browser history. That is not cleaning your heart, and, it's, and it won't fix your marriage. It's something special and supernatural. But I do want you to hear this as well. You have this group of folks saying, well, why did Moses command them to divorce? And Jesus says, Moses never commanded it. He allowed it. So even though something as deep as the intimate betrayal of adding another sexual partner, visual or physical, into the marriage, even though that's deep and it can cut deeply, though you may have grounds for divorce, it doesn't mean that you have to go there. Here's the fourth thing that I want to say. Um, if you are not eager to forgive, then you can forget about intimacy. Because the greater the intimacy, and I want you to hear this, the deeper the wound. 
What I am not saying is that divorce is never justified. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that based on what the Lord says here, that there does seem to be a lot of room for failure and errors and sin to take place in the context of a marriage and that marriage to still be sustained. It is no coincidence that when the Lord Jesus talks about the relationship with us, his church, he uses the metaphor of marriage, a husband and a bride. Those are four quick things. And I bring all of that up to say, here you have Pharisees talking about the right way to divorce and Jesus is talking about the beauty of marriage. And in so doing, what he helps us to see is that often when we come to God or when we approach him, we're content with too little. We settle for too little. This past week, my daughter uh, had her cousin at the house and they're playing and my daughter's in this phase where she likes to tattle and tell on folks. So she comes in and she says, Dad, Ari's being mean. And instantly, the first thing I do is I look and I say, Ari, stop being mean. But then I have to step back and say, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. They're family. The goal is not just that they wouldn't be mean. The goal is that you're family. You should love and be kind. When two-year-olds are fighting, I settle for too little. I just want peace. But peace, is, peace has never been just not being at war. Peace has been something different. This is where he starts, but I want you to hear this. This, this isn't even mainly about divorce and, and marriage. Here's what he says. I spent way too much time on that. Verse 11, he responded, not everyone can accept or... Verse 10, his disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. The disciples say, yeah. So if we don't have this out that we just thought that folks had, it's better if we just stay single. And Jesus says, not everyone can accept this saying, but only those for whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There were eunuchs who were made by men, and there were eunuchs who have made themselves that way. Hear this. Because of the kingdom of heaven, the one who is able to accept it should accept it. Here's what Christ says. In this day, eunuchs were thought of as a lower class of citizen. A eunuch was uh, a man who was castrated. So he brings up these three groups of men, and the first one is this. There's some that are born that way, so they won't get uh, married or reproduced. Two, it says this, uh, there are some who were made that way. What they did in this day, uh, in this day and age, people uh, had already seen the bodyguard, and they knew that if Kevin Costner is protecting Whitney, that she's going to fall in love. And these kings that didn't want her to fall in love say, hey, we're going to make sure that storyline is not reproduced in this household. So, so they would make them eunuchs. That's what he means, made by birth. People that were meant to protect something precious. But then he says this third thing, and, and I want you to hear this. There's some who've made themselves that way for the kingdom of God. Hear this. It's not him talking about mutilation. In the same way that when he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's referring to determination. That there are people that are so convinced that for me to give the most glory to God in this life and to live free to be able to serve God, that I want to be single for the rest of my life. Jesus embodied that. Can you imagine how hard it would have been to have been married to Jesus? Where if you're ever in a fight, you always know that you're wrong, right? The Apostle Paul, listen, he chose to 
embody that. So the one man on earth that embodied the kingdom of God greater than anybody else, and the one man on earth that from a written capacity explained the kingdom of God better than anybody else, both choose to use this gift. Singleness is not a curse. You are not half a person if you're single. You are a whole person. As long, listen, as long as it's there, it's a gift. Some of y'all say, well, God, give me the gift receipt, right? Because I'm ready to take this back. But I do want you to know, hear this. Look, 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 look. Paul got the same questions that you did when you went home for Christmas. Paul, when are you going to meet a nice young lady? Like, their world like ours diminishes this and says, why would anybody choose it? And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to turn this up on its head. People that are despised, I'm going to show the unique advantage that they have. Then he's going to go on here, look, and talk about children. Right? We talked about that last week. Kids don't get the good pizza. They get the bad pizza. Our world despises them, but Jesus is saying there's an advantage that they have. They know they're weak and dependent and needy. And so what he's going to say is that uh, uh, the kingdom of God belongs to people like this. It's an advantage. He turns it on its head, and then he gets here to the rich young ruler And we are going to spend a bit of time here in verse 16. It says this. Look, just then someone came up. Hear this. Somebody approaches Jesus and asks, teacher, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? Christ tells him, do the commandments. 18. Look, this man says, which ones? Hear this. What's most important is not what Christ says. It's what he leaves out. Look here. Jesus answered, Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments are split in half. Verse uh, 1 through 4 have to do with your view to God. 5 through 10 have to do with your love of neighbor. What does Jesus say here? Gives them all the ones that have to do with your love towards neighbor. And what does this man say? I've kept all of these, the young man told him. What do I still lack? 21, if you want to be complete, Jesus said to him, go sell your belongings and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, he went away, look, grieving because he had many possessions. Essentially what Christ said was this. If you really want to be complete, let's talk about the first one. Have no other God before me. And Jesus said it in a way where the man didn't just hear it, he felt it. And what's more important than what Jesus said is what this man heard. What he heard was leave, sell. What Jesus said was come, gain. And that's what idols do. Hear this. They distort how we hear the commands of God. Jesus showed him what his real God was. How do you know what your real God is? Think about what would cause you great grief if God told you to let go of it. For some of us in here, our God is affirmation. And, be- and belonging. And we may not be rich in beauty, or, or we may not be rich in money, but we're rich in beauty. And we know clearly what God says about how we practice our sexual ethic. And we feel like God has called us to give up that relationship, that practice, that thing. And we hear it and we walk away sorrowful. And that's why, regardless of how much you try, you can't stop lying down in bed with that person. Some of us are rich in reputation. And Christ tells us to be honest and to tell the truth and to live like he does. 
But when we find our reputation attacked, that's why we can't stop lying to everybody else because we can't imagine letting that go. Some of us are rich in righteousness, good deeds. And that's why when Christ tells us to forgive 70 times 7, we can't let go of the bitterness. You want to know what your God is? What are the things that God is abundantly clear about in his word that you spend more time trying to make it complex than you do obeying? That's what your God is. Jesus doesn't tell this man to divest of his wealth. Jesus calls him to a life of discipleship whereby he could gain riches that he can't lose. And the end of this story is the saddest thing. Do you know what? He leaves with everything that he came with. But do you know what he doesn't leave with? Jesus and joy which are a package deal. The disciples, on the other hand, say this, Lord, we left everything. And do you know what they get? This promise from God that they'll reign with him in eternity. I only bring that up to help us see this. Look, uh, we tend to think of building by addition, but Jesus sets things right by turning everything on its head Jesus thinks of building by subtraction. It's best if you and I think of ourselves as sculptures. When Michelangelo sculpted what is his most famous sculpture, David, he didn't understand himself to be building something beautiful. The sculpture wasn't complete by him adding more stone to it. The sculpture was only made complete when he removed the unnecessary stone. And he would say it like this, the more the marble wastes away, the more the sculpture grows. He would stare at this block and say, there's too much here. I've gotta take some away, I've gotta take some away, I've gotta take some away. And taking away and chipping at it wasn't a loss. Behind the brokenness of that chisel was the beauty of this sculpture. I wish some of y'all in here knew that God was a sculptor. I wish some of y'all in here knew that the loss that you feel, the pain, the humility, is not God robbing you of anything. It is him removing the unnecessary so that the necessary can speak. It is not God trying to confuse you any more than the words ambulance on the front of an ambulance written backwards is trying to confuse you. It's not there to confuse you. Do you know why it's written like that? To communicate to you so that the person that's driving doesn't have to make this large adjustment in the way that they're faced to get the message. But you can look straight on in your rear view mirror and see it spelled out in the right way because it's backwards. What would confuse somebody if they looked at it head on makes sense as it's flipped around. If you think that your life is just too hard for that reality to make sense, I want you to hear the words of Jupiter Hammond to a group of slaves in New York, 80 years before emancipation came. What he says is this, now my brethren, it seems to me that there are no people that ought to attend to the hope of happiness in another world so much as we do. Most of us are cut off from comfort and happiness here in this world and can expect nothing from it. Now seeing this is the case, why should we not take care to be happy after death? Why should we spend our whole lives in sinning against God and be miserable in this world and in the world to come? If we do this, we shall certainly be the greatest of fools. We shall be slaves here and slaves forever. We cannot plead so great temptations to neglect religion as others. Riches and honors which drown the greater part of mankind who have the gospel 
in perdition or in hell can be little or no temptation to us. What he's saying, what he's challenging this group of slaves to do is to see, look, your earthly poverty is not a disadvantage. It's a travesty. It is one of the most cruel human rights violations that has ever existed in the face of this world. And if this world was all that it was, there would be no advantage to it. But what he's saying is, although it's unfortunate that God has placed you here, what he has done is he has chipped away the temptations that would have a moral rich man turn his back on the gospel. And he's put you in a place where at least daily you feel your need for him and you are not blinded to the shallow substitutes that this world offers. If God can use something as horrendous as that to bring about his glory and a deep knowledge of him, what makes you think that he can't use your poverty? The fact that you've worked as hard as you can, you've been responsible with your money, but things just don't work out. What makes you think that he can't use your divorce? The fact that you did everything right to maintain and to stay and to forgive, but yet the person walked out on you. What makes you think that God can't use your hardship to help you feel your need for him? And though you may not walk away like the rich man, that's a good thing because he walked away and had everything except for Jesus and joy. And there's some of us here that have walked away and we have nothing except for Jesus and joy which is greater in the grand scheme of things. Jesus fixes things by turning it on its head. I'm here to tell you, lift your head up. Everybody that follows Jesus feels like they're losing at times. Everybody does. If you feel like you're at a loss because of what you had to give up or what Jesus has taken from you, lift your head up. You are not losing. It's opposite day. Uh, while that may be good news, it's not the end of the sermon. Because everybody that approaches Jesus leaves different. And good food put in a dirty container can become contaminated. This good truth, hear this, put in hearts that are sinful can be contaminated. And here's what I mean by this. Exodus chapters 1 through 19, do you know what God does? He goes to an oppressed group of people. He tells them, lift their head up, and he saves them. Tells them, you are greater and you have more dignity than what your oppressors said about you and they lift their heads up and he says but then God says this look when you get into the promised land I know I told you to lift your head up but the danger is that in starting to lift our head up one of the things that we could do is instead of keeping our eyes focused on Jesus we can start to look around and look down on other people Listen, I'm not trying to make too much of this point, but in Matthew 19, 27, look, look at this. Then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you, so what will there be for us? And do you know what Jesus does? Jesus tells a parable. A parable is a prescription. Jesus does not give a prescription where there's not a potential problem. As Peter starts to, to look up and says, wait, 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 look at our works. 
All right, Christ said to leave all, to come to him. We've left everything that we had, and we've come. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 20. I'm going to read it real quick, and it says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers for one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out at about nine in the morning, he saw people standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And so what takes place is this landowner goes out and just throughout the day, he continues to bring folks into the field up until the very end of the day with one hour left of work, he brings them in. So what you have is all of these people that started off the day unemployed. He tells the first one, you work for a full day and I'll pay you for a full day. So then what he does is he brings the last folks in first and he pays them for a full day's work. So the first people are waiting in line like, all right, so if he paid them for a full day's work and I, and I actually did a full day's work, then by the time he gets to me, I'm going to get more. Here at verse 9, when those who were hired, about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius. When they received it, hear this, they began to complain to the landowner. These last, these last men put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. What they said was this feels like an injustice. We've been done wrong. This saying is unknown, but it goes like this. When you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And what you have, look, I want you to hear this. For all of us who are just told to lift your head up, um, it doesn't take long to get accustomed to privilege. These men were unemployed at the start of the day and were complaining at the end of the day, hear this, when they got what was actually promised to them. Verse 13, he replied to one of them, friend, I ain't do nothing wrong to you. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? What he's saying is you aren't complaining about an injustice. You're complaining about my generosity, which says more about you than it does about me. I want you to hear why Jesus is saying this to a group of people who he just told to lift their head up. Because the danger can become as soon as Christ talks about our inherent value and dignity and worth. It does not take long for the person that is oppressed to come out of oppression and become themselves an oppressor. It doesn't take long for our hearts to be to take what Christ says and twist it. Listen, we've all heard the objection when it comes to Christianity from people that don't quite understand what Christ did, saying things like, so you mean to tell me if a man who lives his whole life and does things that are wrong and is on death row, and he knows that he's going to die. And just before he goes to the electric chair, he puts his faith in the Lord that he'll be in heaven. And the person who spends his whole life trying to do what's right never puts his faith in Jesus. He'll end up in hell. And what we have to say is, yes. I think that's what the Bible teaches and is clear on. That what you find is that we serve a God that is very generous. But hear this. 
as soon as you and I start to do what's right or start to do the right thing, the thing that we immediately do is start to create this hierarchy and set up these good deeds. And what Jesus is saying, hear this, is he wants to talk about the gospel in such a way that Christ came to save, that the only conclusion that you would come to is when you stand in front of him, you would have to say, so you mean to tell me nothing that I've done in the past up to this point counts? And there's two ways to hear that. Somebody could say it angrily. You mean to tell me nothing of what I've done counts? None of the good things that I've done, none of them count at all? And with steam flying from their ears, they could be angry. And Christ would say yes. Or what you could get is a repentant thief being crucified on a cross. Not with steam from his ears, but with tears falling from his eyes, saying, you mean to tell me nothing of what I've done in the past counts? And Christ would say, yes. It's the same message. But what's good news to some causes the other to take all their possessions and leave. In grief. Jesus sets things right by turning things on its head. And what changes us at our core is one word. It's the same word that we've talked about for the past few weeks. Worship. And all worship is, is this. It's us reminding ourselves that God's generosity is greater than your sacrifice. It's reminding me to lift my head up, but not to look at my work or anybody else's, to lift my head up and to look at God and his work. And when you do that, do you know what you'll see? You'll see Jesus. Jesus was a king on a throne, but he embodied more than just singleness. He embodied what it is to be a king on a throne and coming down to the lowest class of society. Jesus was more than just a king on a throne that embodied that. Jesus was a king on a throne in a perfect, harmonious relationship, fidelity with God himself, and he exchanges that to come to earth and to marry an unfaithful bride. You talk about giving up a lot. Paul's going to talk about Jesus who had all the riches, gave it all up, traded places to come to the earth and to be poor and not just to be made poor, but to die the death of a poor criminal who was robbed of the riches of beauty, the riches of reputation, and the riches of righteousness. You talk about being paid fairly for work. This parable at the end is just a muted expression of what God has done in Christ. These men were mad because you had a group of folks that worked part of the day and got a full day's pay. Jesus came and none of us bore the heat of God's wrath and affliction. Jesus took all of that on himself on the cross for us. And do you know what we get? Not just a day's pay. We get eternity in paradise with him. We get a God who's going to make his home where our home is. God one day will have his mail delivered to the same street that your mail is on. You talk about unfair. In Jesus, what we get is him not just instructing us that God flips the value system of earth on its head. We have somebody that embodies it so that when we get the blessings that he gives us, 
We don't look at our works at all, but we are reminded that weakness, weakness is the price of admission into God's kingdom. So anybody in here that would acknowledge it, that would just say, God, in and of myself, I'm morally bankrupt. God, I was proud and I came to you in pride and you've humbled me. The humility that you gave me is not a punishment. It is God priming the pump for you to receive his grace with with gratitude. And y'all, above all else, it is this gratitude that causes you and I to go and to talk and to share. I've talked quite a bit about uh, the friend of mine who stepped in and paid off uh, $60,000 worth of student loans for me. Uh, But I try not to talk about it too much. Uh, lest somebody come up to me and say, hey, I want you to introduce me to him. (laughs) What I'll say is, I can introduce you to him and you can admire him for his gratitude, but that was a one-time thing. I can introduce you to him, but he doesn't know you like he knows me, so he's probably not going to do it uh, for you. I can introduce you to him, but he's got a limited amount of resources. So even if he wants to, he's probably likely not going to do it for all of us in here that have debt. So although I'm filled with gratitude for what he's done, my gratitude doesn't lead me to share because I don't want you to expect something of him that he can't provide. I want to tell you about a guy who paid off a greater debt. And the only reason that I'm up here is to introduce you to him, to tell you that what he did for me was not a one-time thing. What he did for me, um, he does it, but he knows you just as well as he knows me. I want you to know that there's nothing that you can do to get him to do that. He wants to do it because he's gracious, and I want you to know that he's already been clear and he's made a promise that anybody that comes to him and cries out, for their need, will get the exact same treatment that I got. So in my gratitude, I'm eager to share that. In your gratitude, be eager to share it. That's a message that works especially well for people who have a troubled past, who want to desperately hear the words and come to the conclusion with tears in their eyes. They can say, so you mean to tell me nothing that I've done counts. And we can say with tears in our eyes, absolutely. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your generosity, above all else, would move us out of our seats and help us to go. Help us to be grateful for the work that your son has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in the precious name of your son we pray. Amen.